Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Willastiquic. Today, it's my great pleasure to be interviewing Lori Chambers and Joan Sangster about their edited book in the Essays in the History of Canadian Law series, Volume 12, New Essays in Women's History, published for the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History by the University of Toronto Press in 2023. Laurie Chambers is a professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at Lakehead University. She's written several books, including A Legal History of Adoption in Ontario and Married Women and Property Law in Victorian Ontario. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and currently serves as the president of the Canadian Law and Society Association. Joan Sangster is a Vanier Professor Emeritus at Trent University and past president of the Canadian Historical Association. She's the author of several influential books, including Transforming Labour, Women and Work in Postwar Canada, and Demanding Equality, 100 Years of Canadian Feminism. Listeners may want to check out our Witness to Yesterday podcast about that book, which was released in spring 2023. Joan is also a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and has held a Killam Fellowship. Laurie and Joan, thank you so much for joining us on Witness to Yesterday. Laurie, this volume is the latest book in the Essays in the History of Canadian Law series published by the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History. Could you tell us a little bit about the series and how this volume makes a significant contribution? Well, as you probably know, Nicole, it's a fabulous series. They've done a lot of really interesting edited collections in the history of Canadian law, focusing on various regions, on topics across time periods and the different systems of law in Canada. But and there have been many monographs by the Osgood Society also that deal with gender and the law. And many of the edited collections contained single articles or an article or two about gender. But perhaps surprisingly, up until this point, there had not been an edited collection through that series that dealt explicitly and exclusively with women and gender. And so Joan and I thought it was time to make that addition to this uh, wonderful series. And Um, suggested it a few years ago. And then we had the call for papers and the workshop. And it's been an exciting process from the get go. So it was um, really to fill this, not a gap, because they have dealt with gender in path breaking ways, but to bring gender to the forefront in a single volume in that series. Joan, I'd like to quote the first sentence in the introduction. Feminists have long trained their critical eyes on the law. Could you explain this simple yet profound sentence for our listeners? Sure. I think one thing we did not want to do in this volume is imply that feminist attention to the law in terms of writing and scholarship was somehow new in the last few decades, because in fact, feminists 
and the women's movement has focused on the law, at least since the 19th century, um, in their efforts to alter women's lives, to secure equality, uh, autonomy, and, and dignity. And they've done so from many different political perspectives. There's never been one feminist approach to the law. People's politics might have been quite um, skeptical about changing the law, or they might have had a lot of uh, optimism about the law being a means to change women's lives. Um, they might have come from different political movements. But the law represented such an important institution in society that feminists often focused on it as a something needing changing. And when you think about it, and what the law covers, that makes a lot of sense because we're talking about the criminal code, we're talking about family law, labor law, um, social policy, and then later about also quasi-judicial processes um, like the human rights commissions and so on. So it made a lot of sense that feminists focused on the law. And uh, we made the point that even before there were very many women in law school, Feminists in the movement were trying to educate people about how important the law was. So to take one example, Marie Guerin Rajois in Quebec was very um, intent on writing about this, although she had no formal legal training, and also uh, pressuring the Dorian Commission there in the 30s because they wanted family law changed. So feminists have long looked at the law critically, uh, said they need to change things, what we're blessed with now is not only a feminist movement, but a lot more women in the last decades in law schools, in the law profession, who are also talking about the law and how to change it. Laurie, the essays in this volume cover a wide range of topics, including several interesting court cases in which women attempted to find redress through the legal system. How does the case in historical context method of scholarship shed light upon greater historical themes, such as the exercise of women's agency? That's a great question, Nicole. And it was an explicit purpose of this book for each uh, chapter to focus on a single case or piece of legislation in the hope that this could provide a kind of thick description, not only of the case itself, but of the wider society in which that case took place, because the moving from the particular to the larger picture allows us to understand not just the one woman's story, but the the wider society that constrained her and against which she struggled. Um, and so these Articles use a wide variety of sources and archival methods, so they're not all the same um, in terms of their um, exact methodology and sources, but they all expand on or reinterpret legal events through the lens of a, a single case or piece of legislation. So Lindsay Campbell analyzes the Wartime Elections Act, and similarly at the end of the book, Taylor Starr looks at a more recent uh, property legislation, married, marital property legislation in the province of Ontario. Uh, Sarah Carter looks at Métis script through the case of one woman, and that article really challenges the economic origins of settler power in Alberta and turns a lot of the sort of heroic history of the white male in the West on its head and really reveals a different reality on the ground. Uh, some of the historians in this 
collection, also use popular press to a strong degree. Um, and uh, Taylor does that too, in addition to looking at the legislation. Melanie Metho and Don Fison use a lot of popular press in their construction of the Delphi affair and then also in the lo- in looking at the um, the execution of Thomasina Teolis. And there, then there's the more reliance on traditional cases where you have Jim Phillips looking at the case of uh, the complicated divorce case, which becomes a separation case of the Campbells and Eric Ryder's ex- exploration of sort of women's um, right to have any kind of respect in society, which is really what that case is about uh, when it comes down to it. Uh, And then more recent tribunal cases, which both Joan and Julia and myself and our my co-authors work on. And each of these cases, even though they use different sources, looks for from the case out and back in out back to the case. So you look at a microscopic event, and examine it in in extensive detail and think about how it intersects with its cultural surroundings. Um, And Constance Backhouse also does this in the context of the criminal law in um, in her case. And this permits the sort of pinpointing of concrete impact of legal rules on individuals, on real people at a specific time. And it's different from how lawyers treat either law or legal sort of cases, um, because for lawyers, the story behind the case is usually irrelevant. All they care about is the facts and and more of the facts. But we're very concerned about not just the legal dispute, but all of the social processes around that dispute and how they impacted the actions of people in the court and how the court interpreted the case. And so we're looking at both precedent setting and unknown cases in this book, looking at cases that are driven by a plaintiff's unrelenting quest for justice uh, and other cases in which state actors dominate and understanding the society through those methods. And there, again, we use multiple sources, case law, media reports, trial transcripts, judges' notes, government documents, administrative documents, personal papers, and in some cases, oral history. Uh, But whatever the time period or the theme, all of the authors share a really strong commitment to providing a rich historical and social context, unraveling the process of legal decision-making, explaining the biographies of all the people involved in the cases, whether they're unknown defendants or prestigious judges, and looking at sort of the, the pluralism of law. Women are agents in this process. They're attempting to advance their own interests through a legal system, but it's still a legal system that is overwhelmingly constraining them and oppressing them. So it's really an exploration of the dialectic of power and resistance running through each and every one of these very uh, different and individual and detailed cases. I enjoyed every article in this collection, and the authors use a variety of sources. 
And I love the way you described kind of the going in and back out. So the things are pinpointed, but then you also get a sense of what the context is. These are very, very interesting articles. So let's get to your articles. Joan, you contributed a co-authored chapter to the volume, Discipline is Deterrence, Labor Relations and the Silencing of Feminist Labor Activists. Could you tell us about your research and how it fits in with the themes raised in the volume? Sure. I'm happy to talk about this. You may have to rein me in, though, because it's a topic that I find incredibly interesting as a labor historian. And in fact, my specific interest in the organization of flight attendants began with another Osgood book called Work on Trial, uh, where we were all to choose one case, again, that interested us. And I chose a case about flight attendants who were protesting about their automatic dismissal when they became pregnant. And that then led to a series of articles with Julia Smith about things like grievances that flight attendants filed, particularly around appearance regulation, the popular image of flight attendants, and so on. And I, I think it is a very interesting topic because Flight attendants in Canada were unionized very early um, into the Flight Attendants Association, but they, by the 1980s, they were in CUPE. And this was an occupation where the employers often tried to recruit people who would be look a particular way. Um, they had to be young to begin with. They were searching for a particular kind of amenable personality. And yet here we have a union which was actually quite militant by the 1980s, uh, which had a women's committee, a feminist perspective in that women's committee, and which really fought against the sexualized image that a lot of uh, carriers were trying to use to, uh, to cash in on, make profit on. So our particular case that Julie and I wrote about involved a flight attendant, Senka Dukovic, who was disciplined by her employer, Ward Air. And she was disciplined for speaking to the press about various bargaining and human rights issues in which she made comments like, uh, companies want flight attendants to be squeaky clean, sexy, you know, which, of course, if we heard something like that today, we just nod and say, well, yeah, they did. <laughs> you know, it was pretty obvious that they were trying to sexualize flight attendants. But at the time, the employer took exception to this and claimed that it was hurting their business. And so they disciplined her and suspended her for two weeks. And so our article is about that suspension. And then QP taking the case to the Canadian Labor Relations Board to protest her suspension as unfair. So it reminds us, I think, on one hand, how important these quasi-judicial tribunals and regulation was in women's lives. This was one of the only ways that people could get some justice in the workplace, along with using their unions to do that. And we talk about why the case evolved as it did. Uh, we look at the press coverage. We looked at the political economy of the airlines at the time, all that context that Laurie was talking about and try to situate that case in a broader social context. And we tried to explain why the case was actually lost. CUPE um, lost that case in a two-to-one decision. Um, the two adjudicators who ruled against CUPE and against Sinkadukovic gave their reasons, as did the dissenting adjudicator. And in terms of context, we look at many other cases that were similar. 
what kind of you know leeway did union officials have to criticize their employer? Well, in fact, it was very broad. Uh, in other arbitrations, it was very broadly defined that you had a lot of leeway, but this was not the case for Senka. So we ask why? Why is it that her particular feminism, uh, you know, irritated these two adjudicators? Uh, why were they so unwilling to see feminist political criticism in the same light as other political criticisms levied by union officials? And you know, in the end, it's a very interesting case because I think it raises another issue about legal history, which is sometimes you look at a case that has unforeseen circumstances, unforeseen outcomes. And the company might have wanted to make a lesson of her by disciplining her, but it really had the opposite effect because on the one hand, there was a lot of press coverage. And so all the issues about appearance regulation and how strict and ridiculous it was came to light in the press. And it didn't discredit Senka Dukovic. It actually highlighted her work for, you know, uh, uh, labor issues and human rights. So Ward Air probably made a strategic mistake going after her. But I think the the essence of the case looks at how feminist critiques uh, are accepted in society around issues of work and how important it is that when women speak up against them, they also have somebody backing them up, like a union that can help them uh, you know, deal with the way in which employers fight back. Well, it's a fascinating story. And now, Lori, you also contributed a co-authored chapter to this volume called Women Not Welcome, Martini versus the Italian Society of Port Arthur, at the risk of being unoriginal here. <laughs> but I'd like to ask you the same question that I posed to Joan. Could you tell us about your research and how it illuminates the greater themes in the writing of women's legal history presented in this volume? Well, I think it's an interesting case. It's also a tribunal case, so it has a lot of connection and links with the, the um, article that Joan just described. Um, but I would say in a different way, it illustrates the ongoing challenges that we still face in the human rights system of siloing and uh, a failure to, to have any kind of intersectional feminist analysis. Um, and you'll see why as I describe the case. But before I do, I want to give a shout out to my two co-authors, who uh, Laura Negro and Michelle Beaulieu. Laura Negro is, or was, a graduate student who worked under joint, the joint supervision of Dr. Beaulieu and myself uh, quite a few years ago. And she is actually from within the Italian community, and it took quite a lot of courage for her to start poking around in this case because it was a hornet's nest with the community. So I, I just want to really acknowledge Laura's hard work in, in get, unearthing the information for this. So um, this case began on the 14th of April, 1989, when Giovanni, Giovannina, Joanne, Roberto, she's referred to throughout as Martini, but she is, Martini was her married name and she's divorced. And so she prefers to be referred to as Roberto. So that is what we will do. Um, she filed a human rights complaint against the Italian Mutual Benefit Society of Port Arthur, which shortly thereafter became what is now presently the Italian Society of Port Arthur. And at this time, the Italian Society had a women's auxiliary, but Roberto believed that the organization 
that held any power was the Italian society, not the women's auxiliary. And she applied using her initials instead of her first name. um, And her application to join the organization was denied. She asserted that this exclusion was a clear violation of Section 1 of the Ontario Human Rights Code, which, as we know, states that every person has the right to equal treatment with regard to services, goods, and facilities without discrimination on the basis of sex in any place to which the public is customarily admitted. So the Board of Inquiry, because it was still Boards of Inquiry at that point, had to determine whether the society was a public facility or service, And the society not only claimed private status, but also took it a step further and said that they were a cultural organization based on ethnicity, which is itself a prohibited ground of discrimination, and that it was protected under Section 17 of the code, which had become Section 18 by the time of the actual hearing. Um, As a discriminated against group, they could protect their membership to only a certain kind of members. So... um, a weakness of the human rights system that we know is that it's slow. And so it wasn't until it wasn't until June of 1995 that the complaint was heard um, and the society was um, permitted to discriminate against her. This hearing took place in a context in which legal challenges to male only organizations were in the news in Canada, the United States and the United Kingdom. And Martini pitted the individual rights of an Italian woman against the rights of the collective of Italian men who had themselves historically faced discrimination. And it raised the question, can women within cultural groups that face discrimination protect themselves from discrimination within their own ethnic group? Um, And within months of Martini, a similar case, Gold versus the Yukon Order of Pioneers, was upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada this latter case has yet to be overturned, so Martini remains correct in law, and a spoiler alert here, to this day, the Italian Society of Port Arthur continues to deny membership to women. So Martini is a, an extremely interesting and important case. She challenged a form of discrimination that was so systematic that it appeared even, I think, to the tribunal as uh, natural and inevitable. The case illustrates the importance of administrative tribunals in the lives of ordinary people of modest means, because this was all she could do to contest her exclusion. But little has been written about the hearing, and in fact, it's largely forgotten, and in town, people certainly don't want to talk about it. And this article fills a gap in historiography because it tells the story of a woman within the Italian community, and their stories are not all that often heard. Um, the stories told using all the extant legal documents, none of which were reported, and therefore they had to be obtained from lawyers involved in the case. The public records of the society, it was Laura was able to get in and read their records, which in some ways is surprising, as well as a series of oral interviews. An oral history was essential, but the interviews also presented challenges. Joanne Roberto wanted to talk to us and two others agreed to participate, one of whom wanted to remain anonymous. Ten years after the first interviews, five other people were willing to speak because times are changing a little bit. Um, But one of whom happened to have been the president at the time of the original hearing. So he was then finally willing to speak about it. Um, The sources for the chapter are mostly pro-Roberto. And this history provides a unique window into one woman's struggle for equality. 
It's important because the historiography of Italian Canadians is very much dominated by male authors who focused on topics like religion, immigration, labor, culture. But uh, there have been women historians. Donna Gabbiacci and Franca Iacoveta have challenged this. But they note that the least understood aspect of Italian women's diasporic lives is their role as resistors, protesters, and activists. And Joanne Roberto provides us an example with this. So her story is based in the, uh, of course, in the Human Rights Code. And she argued that the violation of Section 1 and the society's decision to discriminate against her and refuse her entry reinforced the traditional and stereotypical role of the subservient Italian woman. She said women were good enough to volunteer their time and efforts for events put on by the society. They still do all the cooking and cleaning in the building, for example. Um, But they weren't valued enough to become members who had a voice in decision-making processes. When the um, case was heard at the Valhalla Inn in June of 1995, the respondent, Sam Federico, and the Italian Society of Port Arthur relied on arguments based in Section 18 of the Code, which permits discrimination and exclusion for special interest organizations on the condition that these groups serve only or mostly a particular group of people identified by the ground in the code. Lorraine Mikas, who was the person who heard the tribunal, found that the majority of the society's time was spent on the interests of its members, despite a lot of community events. She said that, and I quote, the fact that it primarily engages in activities serving the interests of its members persuades me that the society meets the criteria. Uh, She also noted that they were acting within the stipulation of Section 18 when they offered partial membership to the non-Italian husbands of Italian women who were themselves denied membership. And this decision came as a shock to Roberto. She said, I taught Italian school for 27 years. You're telling me I'm not Italian enough? And I'm the one that's pushing for the Italian language so your children have a culture and a language to grow in? And they're telling me I'm not good enough and my girls are second-class citizens. I'd like to note here she also taught both Italian and French in the high schools in town for 30 years. So the end to this story is not a good one. The society continues to exclude women. For Roberto, she asserts that it's a cultural thing. And I quote again, they don't want women coming into their domain and bossing them around. They could smoke as much as they want, drink as much as they want, play cards as much as they want without anyone telling them what to do. As one member who remained anonymous admits within the last few years, the organization offers men a place of sanctuary who he asks want to have their wives at the hall when they get to see them all the time. As recently as 2020, the current president argued that change remains unnecessary. And I quote again, I don't see the need for us to be together. The ladies' society do their thing and we do our thing. In the future, maybe 20 or 30 years down the road, it might change. But right now, I don't see the need. Um, And this case provides a window on intra-community gendered dynamics and the limitations and contradictions of human rights protections, particularly because of the siloing of human rights, where cultural rights are seen as in opposition to gender-based rights, and that this keeps being uh, upheld and reinforced. Um, so this explicitly limits protections for women who are within protected cultural groups. And it raises an interesting question because should second generation Italian men who speak English and are white 
be considered a protected group so that they can keep a building to themselves and the power of the money of that organization to themselves while continuing to have their wives do the work that is involved in maintaining the organization. Um, that's a fairly political end to this, uh, to my description of the article, but I do think that it it's an important story to be told. And I really thank, again, I want to thank Laura for her work in um, poking the hornet's nest that was gathering information for this case. So thank you. Well, I think that case is a good preview into the last question that I want to ask you, <laughs> <laughs> which is, as feminist interdisciplinary scholars, I'd like to ask how the essays presented in the book contribute to contemporary debates over women's rights in Canada? I think one thing that we would say is that there's tremendous amount of emphasis in the book on historical context, that every case must be seen in the context in which it transpired. So we'd probably be a little reluctant to draw lessons that are clearly, you know, trans-historical. However, having said that, I think there are some themes in the book that... Uh, get at what your question asks. Um, as you can tell from what we've said so far, there is a lot of emphasis in the book on women's agency and women taking the law to task themselves, even when it's often quite a difficult or impossible um, task. Now, when women do contest the law, if they do so as individuals, it's extremely difficult. Um, in some of the 19th century articles, for example, women took very courageous and brave efforts to um, argue with the law. And they might have had allies that helped, but it was extremely difficult because often those cases, which were highly publicized, uh, were in the newspapers. And the newspapers constructed the woman in terms of the gender ideology of the time. And so she was limited in terms of public opinion and, and what she could actually do to rally public opinion behind her. I think when you get to the 20th century cases, you see how important it is that individuals have some kind of allies backing them up, or there is some kind of social or political mobilization behind them. So to take the example I used of the flight attendant article, uh, Senka Dukovic, who was both a lawyer and a flight attendant at the same time, had a union that supported her. She was in a woman's committee that supported this case. It supported the human rights case they were trying to take at the same time. And that was very important in terms of challenges to the law. It comes up in other essays too. Uh, for example, Taylor Starr's essay on family law reform in Ontario uh, makes it very clear that there were some individuals who were very important, but it was absolutely critical that they developed um, a public base of support, a social mobilization through newspaper columnists and organizations and so on that could help make the case for family law reform. So I guess the first lesson is certainly challenge the law as an individual, but it's a lot easier and better if you have a social mobilization behind you. And the other quick thing I'd say, and it really leads off from where Laurie uh, was just at in terms of describing her case, the case uh, she and her co-authors wrote about, is that in many of these cases, gender is important, but it's not the only power 
access. It's not the only social relation which really shapes the case. It may be ethnicity. Uh, it may be race. It may be uh, colonialism, in, certainly in the case of Sarah Carter's essay. All of these other structures of power are incredibly important and interact with gender in all of these cases. So that certainly when we're looking at these cases in the past, but also when we're analyzing them now, and I think right now this is reflected in the scholarship, um, many feminist legal scholars are not looking only at gender. They're looking at gender in interaction with other um, kinds of inequality, other kinds of oppression in society, whether or not that's class, race, ethnicity, um, sexuality, and so on. So that is, I think that's a theme throughout, throughout the book. Laurie and Joan, thank you so much for talking to us today. This book's really, uh, one of its strengths is that it includes uh, established scholars such as Constance Backhouse and Sarah Carter, but then also includes emerging scholars such as Taylor Starr. They use such different sources and different methodologies, but to look at essentially the same kind of thematic questions. It's a very, very strong edited collection. I encourage our listeners to, to go read it. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful collection. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. My guests today have been Laurie Chambers and Joan Sangster. They are the editors of the latest volume in the Essays in the History of Canadian Law series, Volume 12, New Essays in Women's History, published by the Osgood Society for Legal History by the University of Toronto Press in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. And please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We appreciate likes and shares on social media. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill's Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on January 16th, 2024. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team. Mm -hmm.